Hey, this is Candia Raquel, and you are at the Sensual Sessions podcast, the place to explore sensing pleasure through your senses and moving in a way that is completely free from inhibition. If you haven't already, go to centraldepolar.com and get yourself signed up to get these episodes delivered weekly on your inbox. And today we have a very special guest. This is Philip Shepard. He's an author. He's also an actor, and he is the founder of Embodied Present Process. Welcome, Philip. I'm very happy to have you here, finally. It is such a pleasure to be with you, finally. Thank you. <laughs> yes. So today I wanted to ask you about how to embody sensuality. And first, why don't you tell us a little bit about what is embodiment? Because this is becoming a trendy word. But the other day I saw a Facebook ad with yoga-like exercise about becoming more flexible. And the lady was like forcing herself against the wall. And I was like, oh, no, this is... Everything but somatic embodiment. Like, this is not what we're talking about. So what is embodiment? So so I'd have to go back to my metaphor for the body. Um, to me, the body is like a resonator that attunes to the world around us. And, and so em embodiment isn't about making the body do things or, or, you know, we're in such a cultural paradigm that imposes our will on the body. We sit on top of it in our heads and make it do uh, what it should do for its own good. And, and that's, that's a divided state that to me is at odds with embodiment. The body is the most profound resource of intelligence that is available to us and it's not an intelligence that is enclosed in the self it's an intelligence that opens to the world and works hand in hand with it so my definition of embodiment is it's a state in which the whole of your intelligence comes into coherence with the present there is no embodiment without without that permeability to the present. Permeability to the present. Wow. So embodiment has not much to do with the discursive thinking that is always like projecting or maybe reflecting on the past. That, that even is like we're talking in our minds all the time. And I get a sense of of embodiment being an, a unique state of awareness that is coupled with the environment as one, that is only here and now can we be embodied. Like embodiment, it's not about thinking on being embodied or, or changing your state, but about being in, in the reality of what it is to be now and why do, do we become disembodied because it can be a, it sounds like a paradox like we are our bodies like we are living flesh so like how like we are not ghosts so how could we even be disembodied how this did how did 
this happened. Yeah, so there are two things. One is, to me, embodiment isn't the absence of thinking. Okay. Embodiment enables a different kind of thinking. So I distinguish between my brain and my mind. My brain is in my head. Yes. My mind suffuses every cell of my body, and yeah. my body thinks. And, and some people have difficulty with that because in our culture, thinking tends to be uh, associated with language. Yes. And how can there be thinking without language? But the most profound thinking we do is more of an attunement than, than a sort of cogitation in the, in, in the brain. Yeah. And, so, and so what's happened in our culture is our thinking and our being have separated. Yes. And you think, you, you know, you reflect back on the public school system and the main lesson it's teaching is that the body is something to be controlled and thinking happens in the head. So as a young child, you're told to sit still in your chair. And if you can't sit still in your chair, you're punished. And to suppress the body's energy is at the same time to suppress the body's intelligence. And meanwhile, you're told to fill your head with the right ideas. And, you know, if you do that well, you're rewarded. So it's 12 years of this punishment and reward system. And we come out of it believing that we can think more clearly with this fragment of our intelligence in the head than we can with the whole of our being. So to bring thinking and being back so they're once more the same thing um, is really the, the journey of embodiment. And how did we become so disembodied? It's a, it's a very, very long story. Um, and not that it'll take forever to talk about it, but, but it goes back thousands of years. In the Neolithic Revolution, our center of thinking was in the belly. And you can see that in art, and you can see that in language. And what happens over time as we, you know, as hunter-gatherers, our survival depended on being in harmony with the world around us and feeling it in a way that is inaccessible to us today. I mean, hunter-gatherer cultures can feel the presence of animals. Um, they can feel where water lies. They can, they can attune to the world and feel its reality. But, but instead, of, instead of harmonizing with the world, we decided or, or, or moved in the direction of controlling it. So we control our crops and we control our domesticated animals and we build permanent settlements and, and homes that, you know, with the home, suddenly nature becomes the great outdoors as though nature isn't part of the house, nature isn't inside the house or doesn't belong there. And, and bit by bit, the center of our awareness, the center of our thinking moved up through the body. By Homer's day, it's in the chest. And you can see that in a word Homer uses, phren, P-H-R-E-N. Um, it means in English, mind, but it also means diaphragm. 
And there's one translator of Homer who, who will preserve that sense. And he'll have a character occasionally say, the mind within my breast understands your words. It's gorgeous. That's Richmond Lattimore, the translator. And then by, by Plato, this is 350 BC. We are in our heads. And you can see that clearly in a dialogue Timaeus that Plato wrote, where this wise man is asked, how did the gods fashion us? And he answers, well, first, they created this divine sphere based on the orbs of the heavens. And then they realized it wouldn't be able to get around. So they grew it a vehicle, arms and legs and a trunk. So the head in 350 BC is being experienced as the divinest part of us. And the body is being experienced as a vehicle. So disembodiment has begun. The separation of thinking from being has begun. And that's well over 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago. And we want to flip it around now. <laughs> well, the, the necessity to do that has never urgent. been more imperative. It's urgent because it, it's also the, the idea that we are detached from nature. Like even calling nature nature is senseless because we are nature like Absolutely. there's no no separation like we are feeding the trees with each of our exhales and they also gives us this vital breath in in return so yeah like actually the purest form of of understanding of of cognition is pre-discursive it has no words. Is this state of attunement that you mentioned. Like when you're placing the hand in the stove and you even notice that you're falling into that and you're realizing that, and then you have, even though you have like the insti instinctive reflex to, to take the hand off and not get burned or just a little, we see what we're doing and what is happening. And survival has to do with split second decisions also if you like to drive in a highway like and you're passing cars like you have to make a split second decision and go with all your might otherwise you lose the opportunity so you don't have time to think in words also musicians like you have to keep the rhythm with the body because one is one syllable and seven has two syllables and it takes twice the time and then like you're off there's a there's another yeah there's another aspect to it though which which is very different from the split second non-discursive decisions we make and that you know it's alien to us but it shows up over and over and over in indigenous cultures um i can tell you a couple of examples in um in the Aleut nation. Now, the Aleut islands are the ones that come off Alaska and they separate the Bering Sea from the Pacific Ocean. And it's a seagoing culture. And <clears throat> there's a brilliant Aleut elder, Ilarian Merculiff, who talks about as a child watching the, the hunters and, and they were hunting sea lions. And they would sit on the rocks and look out at the sea wordlessly for hours and hours 
And then one would say, sea lion coming, and all the heads would turn and point in the same direction. Now the sea lion was 10 miles offshore. The sea lion could not be seen, but every man could feel its presence. You know, way beyond sight, but they could feel its presence. And Ilarion himself learned to do that, and he says very clearly, true intelligence is a state in which there are no words. So, so he taught himself as a child to go for hours and hours without one word going through his head. He could just attune. Um, there's another story in The Other Side of Eden, a book by uh, Hugh Brody about Igruk, this whale hunter who was at this time very old, but he was still respected as a great whale hunter. And they've set up camp um, near a split in the ice. And he's lying on this bed of furs. And suddenly he opens his eyes and he says, I think a whale is coming and I think it will breach very soon. Well, everyone rushed outside and stood by the open water. And sure enough, this whale breached. And he could feel the presence of the whale from, from his bed of furs. So there, I, I could go on and on with stories from indigenous cultures that our survival depended on this attunement to the world around us. And we gave up attunement in favor of taking abstract ideas as our guidance. And just to say, there's, there's value in each, but to sacrifice our attunement to the world leaves us alienated and estranged from it and at odds with it. So if you cannot feel the harmony of the world around you, you will damage it yes. rather than working with it. Yeah, working with it. Like getting a sense of reality rather than making an abstraction of reality in our mind and projecting it and molding reality in that way that it's like, in short, the industrial revolution. And what you're saying about this ability of sensing the sea lion and the whale reminds me of this Tibetan Buddhism idea of the mind not being only your perception, but also the space where that perception happens and that is not necessarily bound in a body, but is in this intertwined communication as one with with the moment and with with the everything with reality and then we have this um mind body dualism that was crowned by Descartes Descartes with the i think therefore i am which which permeates like our Western approach towards reality and the world. Like if you don't think you don't, that's the idea. And even, even though like in, in our profession, there's much talk about body and mind or body mind, but still like we have to point out that these two are together as one. I, well, I have a, I have an alternative. I, 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 
I, I, I struggle with body-mind because it puts the focus on the self. It leaves the world out. And so I, I say my experience is an experience of my body world. Right. My so body world. this this is yes. my experience. It's not it's not this. It's not closed off. But we have we in in that um, journey out of the body into the head. We have become enclosed from the world, and our focus is on the self, self, self. In a way, we're trying to organize the self to make it successful, and that traps us in self consciousness. Yeah. Because as soon as you as soon as you take your attention and you focus it on the self, you are divided. It's the self watching the self. And I think we yes. we can spend most of our days thinking about our thoughts about the world rather than feeling the world around us. Yes, yes, yes. I like your concept because <clears throat> it points out at the reality of being like a self, like a selfless self. Because like at every moment we are exhaling like our very essence of life that is our breath is like floating away and we change our skin every three weeks and we have 98% different atoms each year so like there's no clear boundary of this is me and this is you and that is the outside I mean yeah we are a closed system in terms of self-maintenance like I exhale, but then I inhale. But our our own matter is is not really us. Like I ate an apple, and then I become the apple. But like, yeah, reality is that it's more blurry, and this approach gives us a better sense of what's what's going on and and a different state of receptivity and also strength like not being so self-centered not being so so anthropocentric like yeah i i am better than the rest of nature because i think with my brain and the tree doesn't have a brain so the tree doesn't think but if we look at indigenous at the deep knowledge of indigenous cultures then the communication is not in this divisive tone like there's like a an understanding of the mind sensitivity and attunement in every living form. Yeah, I think to me the 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 body knows what the segregated brain cannot know. So so you know what the body most deeply feels is the present. I mean that's what it feels, what is here now. And what the body most deeply understands is that it belongs i mean you you feel the presence of a tree and you belong to each other the body knows this or a bird or a cloud or a river you know the body understands that it belongs and i think what the body most deeply realizes is that everything is alive 
you know, I can hold a pebble in my hand and feel its living presence. There's no question in an embodied way that there is, there is presence and aliveness in that pebble. And, you know, what happens, you know, when we contract into the head, we substitute duplicates for reality. We, you know, and there's a choice. You can live in a world of ideas or you can live in a world of energy. And the world is energy and ideas are frozen energy. And, and it's a choice, but our culture lives in a world of ideas and reality. You know, my experience of reality is my experience of the world passing through me. Yes. And without without that, there I have no, I have no, I lose all my reality. So, you know, as you say, I, you know, I, I take into my body the exhalations of forests that become me, and breathe out in return this gift of carbon dioxide. Or, I, as you say, I eat an apple and I chew and I swallow, and its flesh and its juice become my flesh and blood. And when I walk down the street and feel my energy, I'm feeling the energy of the apple. I'm feeling the energy of the sun transmuted through the apple. And when I, when I meet someone that, that, that I love, I feel their presence, their energy pass through me. And it's that permeability that we fear as a culture because what's happened is we've given our allegiance to the goals and ambitions of the mythological tyrant. So Joseph Campbell writes so acutely about what the tyrant of, of the world's myths represents. And he characterizes the tyrant as a man of self-achieved independence. And you linger over that phrase, self-achieved independence. I mean, that's the American dream. Yes. That's what we aspire to. It's what we're goaded to want. It's what we what what, what we're and it's a fantasy. It doesn't exist. There. It's a fantasy. I, if I, yeah, if I were the not that I'm lobbying for anyone's vote, but if I were the emperor of the world, I I think I would I would um, maybe outlaw the world word independent because because it there's it's a it, there's no such thing. You, you can't point to one example of independence anywhere exactly. everything affects everything everything leans on everything else and exactly. yeah and and so once i understand that my experience of reality is my experience of the world passing through me then i open to the world of energy and live with it and am, and informed by it so much more deeply than any cogitations of the brain could offer me experience of the world passing through me yeah and concepts are frozen energy it, it's just like an in, an illusion that so expensive to solidify and it's what we mostly see as our culture and main geological force of change in in our world or the detriment of our own species and it's lying right there in this phallus of of belief of independence because independence is a political term but it's not a scientific term 
like you point out, because there is no separation of anything absolutely anywhere. Like even the borders within countries are permeable. And even like the pollution here ends up there and vice versa. And like, I mean, the I think, I, I don't remember the exact number, but it, it's like 80% of our dry weight is bacteria from symbiotic bacteria. And, and that is like crazy amazing. But we keep on on trying to to hold on to something instead of flowing with the experience of life itself that is reality passing through you. It's like I inhale this oxygen that my neighbors, the trees, just exhale and, and vice versa. So I mean, there, there can be like a certain fear of this openness, of this giving into internally, giving into the, the fact that it, there's no independent origination of anything. So there can be like a feeling of losing of control. And that's why we have become like a culture of tyrants of our own selves. Like I am, I am the tyrant in my own story and many of us suffer and make others suffer because others made us suffer and that endless horrible cycle. So what is a way to, to restore a sense of, of safety and of being supported when we are open to reality. So, so safety is a funny thing because um, from what I've experienced, life isn't safe. Like if you're alive, you're not safe. You're going to get sick. You're going to get injured. You're going to feel grief and loss. And it's not safe to be alive. And I think what happens is we, we want safety. Yes. And then, but we understand life isn't safe. So what happens is we draw this corollary that, well, maybe, maybe if I'm less alive, I'll be more safe. And so we make our lives smaller and smaller and hem ourselves in. And, you know, the safety is, is the concern of the tyrant. And I'm not saying, you know, step into traffic and get run over, but, but, the alternative to safety for me is security. Yes. And security comes from only one thing, which is your being. The security of your being is something no one, no circumstance can take away from you. And that lies within the body. It does not lie within the head. And that journey back to your being is one that is made possible by surrender, which in our culture is almost a dirty word. Yes. But you go back to Joseph Campbell and his characterization of the hero of world mythology is the man of self-achieved submission. And that surrender is what makes possible the things we most 
desire in life. You cannot reason your way into being present. It is a surrender through the body that brings you into the present. You can't reason your way into love. You can't reason your way into harmony. None of these things, and even harmony, you know, you don't, you, you're never going to possess harmony. It's not, it, harmony is, an ex, is a product of wholeness. It's only as you surrender to wholeness that you partake of the harmony of the world. And we're, you know, we're trying to grasp and hold on to, and all of these impulses are, are, are part of the tyrant's modus operandi. It, 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 it to, to, you know, and, and you're not going to just be able to surrender because, you know, it's like saying, oh, just step off a cliff. <laughs> and so I think there's this teeter-totter effect where, you know, a, a little surrender brings you a little more in touch with your being, which enables a, a little further surrender, which enables a, a, a deeper grounding in your being. And you come back to the body and you come back to the pelvic bowl and you rest there. And from that place of rest, you feel the world in its wholeness and you feel held in its embrace. Held in its embrace. Yes, because this surrender allows for the openness of reality passing through you and the attunement to the life or death information that you can get from that. Like in the same way that the hunters could sense the sea lion miles away, like that sea lion was distracted <laughs> because in turn that sea lion was not sensing acutely the hunters. And it's very interesting to see like like the lioness hunting the zebra and sometimes the zebra being small or whatever just like not allowing the lioness to hunt her so it's it's two ways but it only happens fully in this natural state of embodiment that is our true nature and to which we surrender to like yes and that's why there is no end to paying on insurance companies <laughs> because this is a false sense of security out of control that only dims your light and we want to to hold on to solidify to things when we deeply know at our core that that we all know how it ends and that there's uncertainty at every moment and that those external fixes yes they are useful like you say we don't, we don't want to run into the traffic nor jump to the cliff but that's not where disembodied sense of security lies but in the in the attunement moment by moment 
Which brings me to, to then ask you about the experience of pleasure, because in our culture, pleasure is more, has become a concept for trade. And there's even like this statement on the Declaration of Independence, independence in the US of being entitled to the pursuit of happiness. And in one of the first episodes with Lavinia Plonka, we both had an epic aha moment of, yeah, being entitled to the pursuit <laughs> of happiness. But if you take it literally, like you, you're entitled to go after the carrot forever, <laughs> which in a way it's like, okay, that will keep desire going. But we are sold into the idea of buying pleasure, like go to the Starbucks to get pleasure from your drink. But then like when you get the, the drink as you don't know how to be present, you don't know how to delight with, you don't know, you you actually forgot how to to sense the flavor of, of the starched <laughs> cappuccino you get nothing so there's like this alienation from ourselves and this like endless pursuit of of a pleasure that never comes even if you really paid with your life for it like you arrive to the vacations in the bahamas and people get bored at the third day and and they go into very intense transformational experiences that are very aggressive because they and we've become be, become so numb to to our senses that we want the the cold plunge and then the temascal with burning stones and then go into the not non eating for 72 hours and then jumping off a cliff with a bungee jump and and it's crazy <laughs> so yeah. Well, so, what are your thoughts about this? Yeah, so so to step back um, quite a ways, I think that each of us is born with a unique cluster of gifts. No one in the world has ever had the specific sensitivities and gifts with which you've been born. And I think the world is whispering to us in every moment to put those gifts into service. And so the world is guiding us. The world's guidance is always there. And the world guides us sensually. It is, it is our senses, our, our embodied attunement that follows that guidance. And, and, you know, the, you know, it, it can be a momentary thing or it can be a, a life's calling that, that, that comes down upon you. And, you know, you feel the life's calling and, and you either refuse it because you're afraid or you surrender and you're on that, you know, what Joseph Campbell calls the hero's journey. And, and at the beginning of that journey, your idea of, of success may have nothing to do with the outcome of the journey, but, but the journey has its own success. And I think what happens is 
is in this enclosed um, sort of headist culture in which we're raised, we are told to organize everything. Organizing is such an obsession, that, that need to control and organize, that we organize our thoughts, we organize our emotions, we organize our responses to other people, we, 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 we organize everything and we organize ourselves. And when that happens, when you, you know, take the, the floodlight of your attention and turn it off the world and put it on yourself, you are casting the world in darkness. And you are, you are confining yourself to a state of self-consciousness in which you are constantly supervising the self and trying to organize it, to make it successful, to win at it, to whatever. And you lose this subtle, ever-present summoning to put your gifts into service. And so that, you know, pleasure, this, the pursuit of pleasure as you've described it, becomes a, a poor substitute for that experience of being fully alive. We have to follow the calling, the sensual calling. And surrender to it. It's not, to it's it. not an ego-driven thing. It is a summoning. Yes. And the world, the world needs us to be in service to each other, to all the world. And, and we, we're deaf. We're deafened to that. Yes, and we suffer tremendously for that. And cause suffering. And cause suffering. Yeah. Yes. So would you share with us a little exercise or practice or something so we can be more attuned to this mm. calling and someone to, to be essentially guided to give our unique gifts to this life? I, w I would be happy to launch into something like that, sure. So I begin with the invitation to let go, to just let fall away the concerns and expectations and agendas and ideas that cluster around us. Let them fall the way leaves fall from a tree in the autumn. And just feel, feel your body's energy softening and descending, descending, descending. And as your energy drops down through the body, you'll feel it come into contact with the earth itself and rest there. And let it drop and rest and drop and rest. And as gently as you can, bring your attention to the pelvic floor, to that, to the, to that lowest part of your trunk and see if you can feel the stirrings of the breath there gently gently so it's nothing grand it's nothing willful it's just a surrender to what is happening there and can you feel can you feel the pelvic bowl gently open to the in-breath and gently release to the out-breath And as it does, be aware that the body is an ocean. We are 
70% water. And the breath as it gently fills the pelvic bowl initiates a wave through that ocean and to soften and soften and begin to feel the breath wave travel down through your legs to the soles of your feet and up through the body to the top of the head and even down through the arms to the fingertips. And as that breath wave passes through the body, just gently bring your awareness to any parts of the body that are not permeable to that breath and understand them as shadows in the body or orphaned energy, energy that has been exiled from our being and put on hold. And I'd invite you to think of them like a sandcastle that a child might build on the beach. And the breath wave is like the ocean wave and it washes up against those shadows. And with every breath wave, a little bit more of the shadow returns to the sea. A little bit more of it returns to the ocean. And you feel eventually the breath wave permeating the whole of your being. And you feel the whole of your being brought into fluidity. And as you feel that ocean within, that fluidity of your being, gently bring your awareness to the world around you. Begin to feel the world's fluidity. You feel its subtle currents, its endless exchanges. And allow your awareness to dilate and dilate into the world, feeling the world as an ocean of exchanges. And I'd invite you to recognize that inner fluidity, that inner ocean, as seamlessly one with the fluid world that holds you. Allow your awareness to drop to as subtle a level as you're capable of. And you feel that fluidity more and more subtly. You feel the breath wave more and more subtly. And you feel your union, your seamless union with the world around you more and more subtly. I feel like a current of the all-encompassing ocean, ocean of life, which is a fact. Yes. Yes, yes. Thank you for this poetic, practical, and meaningful sharing in this 
episode. Thank you so much, Philip. It's, it's been such a profound pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me and for this conversation. Tell us, how can we learn more? Oh, good question. Um, I've written three books and they're all available in print or um, audiobooks or Kindle Kobo, whatever you use. Um, New Self, New World was my first book. Radical Wholeness, my second. Deep Fitness, my third. I'd also really encourage uh, people to visit my website, which is embodiedpresent.com. And, you know, there's, there's so many free resources there. I've got writings there, the Embodiment Manifesto, is there um, videos and interviews? Um, and, you know, in an ideal world, I would love to share this work in person. Um, so I have, I have workshops around the world um, coming up in um, Europe in November and in the States in, in the new year and who knows where else. And all the workshops are also listed on my website. Great. Thank you, Philip. This has been fantastic, truly. Such a pleasure. All the best. So, essentialist, go to embodiedpresent.com and get started with the embodiment manifesto to know more about Philip's work. And if you haven't already, please go to centraldepoder.com and get the free guide to awaken sensuality. So until next time, remember to take the time to sense your fire so you can share the flame. <laughs>